0: first reading is from Acts 2 1 through 4 when the day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them all of them were filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit gave them ability the word of the lord brothers and sisters grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ amen uh we're splitting up the uh, the readings a little differently because this reading from romans 8 is uh, a little bit long and it's very dense and so i'm going to sort of read it and we're going to go through it uh, through the sermon uh, together, reading a little and then talking about it a little uh, back and forth, and hopefully we can take in some of the richness that's in this passage for us. So as I've mentioned several times, today is Pentecost, and of course that story from Acts 2, which we heard really just the beginning of, Peter uh, goes on a speech here for quite a long time uh, throughout the rest of uh, almost the entirety of uh, chapter 2, I think it's something like 50 verses or something, it goes on for a while, Uh, and this is the classic story of Pentecost, Because Pentecost, of course, is a day that is commemorating an event, something that has happened, a story, this uh, story of the Holy Spirit coming and sending the disciples outward uh, into the streets to preach the good news of Jesus to people that they normally would be unable to communicate with, at least very effectively. And it might seem odd that on Pentecost, our main reading is from Romans chapter 8. That is not usually where you uh, have a reading on the day of Pentecost to celebrate this event. This long teaching of Paul seems sort of at odds with uh, a day commemorating an event like Pentecost. But the reason we're in Romans chapter 8 today is because this chapter is one of the richest teachings on the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in all of Scripture. There's a few places that really go into depth about the Holy Spirit, and this is one of them, maybe one of the best of them. So I want you to think about it this way. Maybe we can divide, if we're thinking about what the Spirit does for us, we can divide the work of the Spirit into two different kinds of works. The first work is the kind that we see in Acts chapter 2, and that's what I'm going to call the horizontal work of the Spirit. This is the work that the Spirit does among us, between us, from me to you. This is an outward work of the Spirit. So this is the work of the Spirit taking the disciples and sending them out on the street to then speak horizontally, to speak uh, God's promises to those who they encounter out there. This is the Holy Spirit transforming a quiet group on their own, celebrating a nice meal into a band of preachers, a band of prophets, giving uh, Christ's promises now to those whom they encounter. The other part of the work of the Holy Spirit is what I'm going to call the vertical work of the Spirit. And that's especially what we hear in Romans chapter 8. This is, you could sort of think of kind of an inward work, at least more of an individual, personal work of the Spirit. It's it's a work of the Spirit between us and between God, hence it being a a vertical work of the Spirit. And that's especially what Paul is concerned about here in Romans uh, chapter 8. So this vertical work in Romans chapter 8, as Paul lays it out, is going to have four different things in it. And we're going to see those as we work our way through uh, this section of Romans 8. The first is that uh, the Spirit works adoption. This is the first. It adopts us. It gives us hope, especially in the midst of suffering. The Spirit's work, vertical work is prayer. So if the horizontal is preaching, the vertical is now prayer. And uh, the last one is election, which seems a little strange. Um, it's not a, an election year after all, but uh, the Spirit does something called election with us, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get to it. So if you want to, you'll want to follow along, either in your bulletins or in your Bibles, in, with our passage. And I'm just going to read it in chunks um, as we go through of it. So the first part is about adoption. So here I'm going to start in uh, verse 14 right at the beginning of our reading. Paul writes this. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him adoption or the word in greek is actually a little more uh concrete i think than uh, our kind of general thinking of adoption it's literally the word son making or son appointing a spirit who makes us sons of god now you may have noticed uh, that uh, usually when, when we come in our English translations, or if you know if you've come to Bible said you know when I translate, I usually translate these words as, uh, that, as sons as sons and daughters or children, something to show that this is inclusive of not just men but of women as well. Um, but I think Paul is actually being a little more specific here um, because he goes back and forth between these two words: one is sons, which in Greek, just like in Spanish, can also mean uh, men and women so. In Spanish, hijo is uh, son and hija is daughter. But if you have a mixed group of sons and daughters, you just call them all hijos. You'll call them all sons, and it just includes the daughters. Greek does the same thing, but Paul's going back and forth between two. He's going back and forth between sons, which can be inclusive of women, and he's using this other word, uh, technon, which is child or children, just the generic uh, not male or female word for children. He's going back and forth throughout this. And I think he's doing it intentionally because I think when he says, for example, um, where in our translation it says at the beginning, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The word there is actually sons of God. And so a little farther on, we have received a spirit of son making, of being appointed as sons. There's something significant about being sons in Paul's eyes. And it has to do with inheritance, now, if you think about today, inheritance is uh, a fairly, for the most part, a gender-neutral uh, proposition, right? So for the most part, if you've got four children, sons and daughters, uh, they'll usually inherit more or less the same. You know, estates are generally divided uh, fairly equally, and if nothing is specified, then they are divided equally, or as equally as they can be. But in Paul's time, and in fact in most of human history, that is not how inheritance has worked, Usually, if you had uh, four children, let's say, a mix of sons and daughters, it would be the eldest, and actually specifically, the eldest son who would inherit possibly all of the property, or at least the lion's share of the property. So when there are a group of children, when there are many children in a family, there is only one heir. There is only one who will inherit the lion's share of what is being handed down, and that is almost always there is an exceptions, but that is almost always a son and so when paul says all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god i think he's speaking similarly in a way that he does in galatians for example when he says in christ there is no longer male and female you whether you are men or women are now sons as far as inheritance goes sons of god but it's even stronger than that. So now we might think of adoption as being you know, brought into a family. And so we think of Christ, of course, as the son of God, the firstborn son of God. Paul will even say that later in our reading today. Christ is the firstborn son of God. And then we are you know, the stepsons or the stepsons and daughters of God, the stepchildren in the family. And of course, that's a wonderful thing. It's good to be brought into God's family. But still, Christ is the inheritor, right? And then we are the stepchildren who uh, sort of get to share a little bit well, what does Paul say? He says, if children, this is in verse 17, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, co-heirs with Christ. That means we aren't just the stepchildren of God. We are actually made sons of God in the same way that Christ is the son of God. We share in Christ's sonship of God. That means anything that you can say about Christ's relationship with his father can also be said about your relationship with his father. Now that is a radical statement. And that's the first work of the spirit that Paul talks about in this passage. This work of adoption, of being made sons, heirs, inheritors of God alongside of Jesus Christ. At the end there, you hear a little bit about suffering. So let's continue and hear about this suffering. So continuing in verse 18, Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children, actually sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope, notice that word hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, that is, being made sons, the the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It seems a little strange that Paul immediately goes into suffering, I mean, we're made sons of God, right? We're made inheritors, co-inheritors with Christ, inheriting everything that Christ inherits. And yet, what does Christ inherit after all? Well, suffering (laughs) and then glory. Cross and then resurrection. Wrath and forgiveness. We are inheritors with Christ and we inherit everything he inherits. And it turns out that leads to a lot of suffering in the here and now. And yet, the Spirit does something with us and through us in this suffering. The Spirit gives us hope. Now, often we use the word hope, I think I've spoken about this before, um, in sort of a, a flippant way. Uh, Hope becomes something like wish. So when I say, well, I hope the weather's good tomorrow, what I'm saying is, I wish or I hope or I want the uh, weather to be good tomorrow. It is my desire that we have good weather tomorrow. Now, I may not have checked the forecast. I might not have any good reason for thinking the weather will be good tomorrow, but usually when we use the word hope, it's just sort of this weak wish way. Well, whenever you see the word hope in the Bible, it's not in this way. To hope in the Bible is to lean forward with an expectation of something. It's to know that your friends are coming over at a specific time, and as that time draws closer, you're peeking out the window to see if they've made the turn into the driveway or not, if you can see their car coming down the road. It's waiting for something, but it's waiting for something that you know is about to happen. There's a word in here, actually, that literally is to crane the head forward. The whole creation is craning its head forward, straining to hear about this revelation of the children of God. When we suffer, we suffer with a hope, with an expectation that suffering will not be the end, that there will, in fact, be a glory which follows it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And the suffering, surprisingly, includes not just me and you, not just Christians, not just humans, in fact, but all of creation. All of creation groans, we hear. We ourselves groan, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, this adoption, even though we have the promise and the hope given to us, we ourselves groan as we wait for the fulfillment of this promise, for the redemption, he says, which is a word for being bought out of slavery, the redemption of our bodies, because we and the creation have been subjected to death on account of sin, and death's power is the power that is visible in the world, and yet the Spirit gives us a hope, a hope which Paul says is not seen, because, of course, you don't hope for what you, what you already see. If you already see it, you're not waiting for it. You just have it. But it's a hope that allows us to wait patiently, to patiently expect, to wait long-sufferingly for the uh, arrival of this promise. Third work of the Spirit, prayer. He goes on, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs, groans, we could say, too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes that is praise for the saints according to the will of God. What do you do when you are in suffering? You pray. You ask God to deliver you from the suffering. Now, if it wasn't, this isn't the idea that you get suffering and you just are are gritting and bearing it and that's it. No, you are praying and asking God to deliver you from this suffering. If suffering wasn't real, of course, uh, or if suffering is real, of course, you would have it otherwise if you could. Even Jesus would have had it otherwise if he could. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done, he prays in the garden before going to the cross. And yet we don't know how to pray as we ought. Either we are too timid in our prayers. We don't think that God would really uh, honor our uh, requests of God. They seem too small. After all, there is a lot of suffering out there in the world. And to ask uh, for my own deliverance uh, from perhaps not being able to sleep well or something like that seems very small in comparison. Yet God, our Father, cares for us. And so we pray. We pray. Or perhaps we don't know what we're praying for. We actually don't know what the end result of this suffering is going to be. And so when we pray uh, that the temporary suffering would be relieved, we might deprive ourselves of what the actual result of that suffering might be. Regardless, we don't know how to pray as we ought. And so the Spirit prays for us. This is a remarkable promise, I think. Because how can we pray rightly? How can we pray everything that we need to pray? How can we properly ask and thank and glorify God in our prayers? We can't. And so the Spirit groans with us. With sighs too deep for words. Sighs that cannot be expressed. So that our needs can be heard by God. Even when we don't know how to pray or simply can't bring ourselves to pray as we ought. And then last election, let's hear about this. Continuing in verse 28, We know that all things work together for good, for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family, or literally the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now this is one of those passages that you've, you read it and you're saying, okay, what is Paul even talking about here? What, what is this four new predestined, uh, called, justified, uh, glorified? What, what is going on here? And all of this is this word, election. So we we hear this word predestination, right? Predestined. And it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We begin to worry. Okay, what does it mean if God has foreknown and predestined us? Does that mean that everything that happens to me is uh, chosen by God ahead of time? That if uh, I uh, uh, get cancer, for example, if tragedy comes, that God chose at some point in the distant past to give me tragedy? Or is it something, and this is sometimes even more troubling, does it mean that God at some point in the past, uh, before creation, uh, decided which of us he would appoint to heaven and which of us he would appoint to hell? Which of us he has chosen for salvation and which of us he has chosen for damnation? These questions make us nervous, and rightly so. For it makes us wonder if God can be trusted. Am I one of the ones that God has chosen And is God actually good if God is choosing tragedy and suffering and evil for us? I mean, just look around the world and see all of the suffering that there is. Couldn't God have prevented that? It leads us into all of these troubling questions. And so we, in the Lutheran church especially, like to talk about election. And Paul will use this word elect here just a little bit later, which simply means choosing. When you elect somebody to a political office, you are choosing that person to be in a political office. And one thing that we know about God that is consistent all throughout the the story of Scripture is that God is a God who chooses, a God who makes choices, a God who chooses a, a family, the family of Abraham, who chooses a nation, the nation of Israel. They will be his chosen people for the sake of all the nations, he says. And a God who chooses us, as we heard last week, In baptism. All things work together for the good, for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. That is, all things work together for the good, for those who God has chosen, those whom God is choosing. Now, before you get all worked up thinking about how uh, God did his choosing back at the beginning and uh, whether he uh, has a list of of ones who are saved and ones who are not, Uh, this is what some uh, Christian traditions will teach, Uh, that's all beyond us. Paul doesn't say anything about that here. We are not given any insight into that. It's not ours to wonder about. But as Lutherans, we teach and we understand that God does his choosing here and now. Not at some point before the foundation of the world, or if he does, he's not telling us about it, but here and now. And he does it through words, words that are spoken like in preaching. He does it through the words of, uh, of, of, of bread and wine and communion, the words that's put in with the water of baptism. God is choosing, God is electing us here and now so that you don't have to wonder and look at, you know, see if you have enough good fruits in your life to see if you are one of God's elect. You just look at God's promise that God's made to you. Did God baptize you? Then you're chosen. Has God given you communion? Oh, then he chose you. Has God uh, sent a preacher to speak the gospel to you? Well, then I guess you're chosen. You're one of God's elect. And that makes this a promise. All things work together for the good. Even suffering will work together for your good. A professor of mine put it this way. All things, the whole cosmos, are bent in service to of god keeping his promise to me whether they are suffering or evil or tragedy they are turned against their will perhaps to serve god's promise which god will fulfill this predestination then this election comes through the holy spirit's calling this calling Leads to our justification, our being made righteous, being declared righteous by God. This justification leads to glorification, which won't come until the resurrection, but it will come. This is why election is so important here, because, wow, somebody's happy. Uh, This is why election is so important, because without election, none of what follows at the end of this passage can be said with any certainty. But because God is choosing, not you, because God is the one who is making the promises, not you uh, being responsible for keeping them, we can say this with certainty. And I'm going to read the rest of the passage now. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not withhold his own son, but also gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him Give us everything else. So what are we inheriting? Everything else, all things. Who will bring any charge? That is, who will bring an accusation against God's elect, God's chosen? It's God who declares righteous. Who will condemn? It is Christ Jesus, the one who died. Yes, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. It is him who indeed intercedes, offers prayers for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? What about that suffering? Hardship? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Or sword? As it is written, he's quoting the Psalms here. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The, the word is literally hyper conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul writes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and that includes you, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've heard that passage before, if you've heard nothing else. It's one of the best uh, statements of the gospel in all of scripture, in my opinion. But we can only say it because God chooses. And because, because God is faithful to the choices that God makes. And God has indeed chosen you in your baptisms. God indeed will choose you again, reinforcing this choice as we celebrate Holy Communion in just a few moments. God indeed uh, continues to reinforce this choosiness of yours when you turn to each other and said, Jesus loves you. To one another. That was you preaching the gospel. That was you electing each other through the work of the Holy Spirit into this promise of God. And God does it whenever your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus' name as they were just a few minutes ago. All of our life of salvation rests on God's choice of us because the Spirit has made us sons, inheritors of God. Because the Spirit gives us this hope even in the midst of the suffering which seems to contradict our, uh, our adoption. Because the Spirit prays for us when we don't know how to pray. And the Spirit keeps on choosing us so that we can say that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.